This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 20. And the quote of the day is from Thomas Jefferson, who said, If you want something you've never had, you must be willing to do something you've never done. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Ruffini. We're coming at you with information, education, and motivation for drumming and beyond. What's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here with another session of the Drummer's Resource Podcast, and we have a great show today. We have Jim Riley from Rascal Flats on the show, and Jim is the drummer and the music director for Rascal Flats, and he's been with them since the inception, and they have sold upwards of 20 million records, which is just an amazing feat. Even more so amazing is Jim's journey to getting there and he goes in detail about some of the stuff that he did upon moving to Nashville and the steps that he took to really forge a career in music and he has this by any means necessary attitude which you know is the reason why he got to where he is he's an amazing drummer and his attitude is is something that uh that a lot of people don't have and just his like I said, his by any means necessary way of looking at things. And he says in the interview, you know, he was destined to play drums and he wasn't going to give up on that dream. So his actions spoke louder than his words. And you'll definitely see that. So if you're looking for a little bit of inspiration and you're out there thinking, man, I really want to make a career in music and I really want to be touring with some bigger name acts Listen to Jim's advice, but also do the things that Jim mentions that he did. Um, some of the stuff that he did was a little a little rogue, but uh, but he he definitely lets you know that he was not messing around and he was there to make an impact and he was going to make a career either way, and he did it. So before we get into the interview, real quick, I want to thank everyone for all the positive feedback and and the ratings and things on iTunes. And if you like this, please share the podcast with your friends and leave us a rating on iTunes or leave us some comments and feedback and let us know what you'd like to see on the podcast. Also, I got a little hookup for you guys. As you know, I play Boso Drumsticks, which are the world's first full line of of bamboo drumsticks. And now, as a listener to the podcast, you can get 15% off just by going to bosodrumsticks.com and using the promo code PODCAST. So if you head over there, pick out some sticks, go to check out, use the promo code podcast, and you automatically get 15% off just for being a listener to the show. So that's definitely a good deal. Leave a message on Boso's Facebook page and thank him for hooking that up. Boso, B as in boy, O, S as in Sam, O, drumsticks.com, 15% off. Just use the promo code podcast. And other than that, we're going to get into this interview, listen to what Jim has to say. It's a good one. Thanks so much for listening. I'll talk to you afterwards. Jim, thank you so much for joining us today, man. It's really, really great to have you on the show. Absolutely, man. Thanks for having me. You picked an earlier time than most people pick, than most drummers pick, I should say. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm up. I've got a, a one-year-old and a five-year-old, so uh, my day starts pretty early around here. Good deal. Yeah, I like uh, I like getting up early myself. Actually, I remember in college that they would always have the percussion classes at like eight o'clock in the morning. Uh, well, I didn't say I didn't say I liked getting up, but uh, <laughs> it's definitely uh, what needs to be happening in my life right now. And so right. I've already been up for a couple hours with my uh, 
with my kids. So uh, there you go. Not a big deal. I just remember they would always schedule them. At, you know, there would be like the eight o'clock percussion ensemble. And I was like, who? What? First of all, who wants to get up that early? Second of all, who wants to play drums at eight o'clock in the morning when they're, you know, all they want to do is go back to sleep. Yeah, well, they didn't do that at North Texas. I was always in some sort of music theory or a history class. I, I tried to, I tried to book a, uh, a music class, uh, first class at eight o'clock because I lived in the dorm right across the street. So I got you. Uh, I could sense. basically hear the bells going off for eight o'clock and and run across the street and not be too late. Right. So. <laughs> so speaking of North Texas Tech. Um, I always like to get the backstory of of how people got into playing and you know how how they really fell in love with drumming. So if we could rewind a little bit, how did you get into playing as as a youngster? I mean, for me, uh, music was something that I was always always interested in. I mean, you can go all the way back to to kindergarten, and there were little things where they'd ask us what we wanted to do, and I always wanted to be a musician. It was never uh, there was never a doubt in my mind. So I flash forward a couple of years. Uh, I remember there was this, uh, this commercial for the kiss alive Two record that they kept playing on TV and it showed Peter Chris, you know, in this, on this, uh, drum riser, you know, that was kind of ever expanding up through the ceiling. It would seem, you know, with right. drums all around them. And it just seemed like, uh, absolutely like it's something just uh resonated and that's absolutely uh what I, I knew i wanted to do for the rest of my life and how old were you then i mean i was really young but i, I didn't I, by by fourth grade uh i asked my parents if they'd let me take drum lessons at school and they said no of course and then fifth grade they said no and then by sixth grade, they figured out whatever was wrong with me probably wasn't going to go away. So they just decided, uh, you know, they'll, uh, they why not let them play drums, you right. know? And are they, uh, are they still like, well, when are you going to get a real job? No, no, <laughs> they, they have been behind me, uh, every step of the way, uh, from that moment on, mm-hmm. they, uh, they were with me as far as, uh, you're going to hear a little children's toys going off in the background you'll just have to ignore that no, that's fine. Uh, but uh no they've been behind me every step of the way uh you know driving me to everything that i ever needed to go to when i was a kid and uh you know so fortunate for that nice uh and so you know i was 12 years old my parents were taking me to to snare drum lessons and then uh you know i was uh they bought me a drum set when I was, you know, in the sixth grade and, uh, you know, we're just behind me all the way. So I basically took lessons from, you know, the time I was in sixth grade, you know, all the way through college, uh, studied with a guy named, uh, Arthur press that was, uh, in the Boston symphony at mm-hmm. the time and, uh, was involved in some really great programs up in the Boston area that had a great, you know, youth symphony that I was involved with and a youth wind ensemble at the new England conservatory. So there was a lot of that stuff going on. My, my band director, uh, at, at Natick high school had actually gone to North Texas. So, uh, he was the one who had originally, uh, recommended it to me. And so, you know, the more I checked it out, the more I realized, you know, that was going to be the school for me. Mm -hmm. So I know that, uh, you were saying, you know, when you were a kid, you, you said that 
okay, I want to be a musician. I want to be a professional musician. That's all I want to do. And was it, I want to be a drummer, or was it like, I'll be any musician that I can be at first? You know, Well, I think it. at first, uh, I, I don't think it immediately, sixth grade, I, I mean, uh, you know, in kindergarten, I don't think it immediately hit me. I think I was maybe thinking, you know, singing and songwriting and guitar, mm-hmm. guitar playing, which is, you know, stuff that I've gotten back to. But, um, you know, the first instrument I picked up was guitar. I was given a guitar probably around that time that I still have. I just saw it downstairs. And, uh, you know, my initial inclination was to play the guitar like left-handed. And so nobody wanted to teach me the guitar that way. And so I kind of lost interest in the guitar pretty quick, took a couple classes on guitar and, um, just really wasn't overly interested. Right. So, uh, you know, uh, I just decided, I, like I said, when I, I started uh, seeing Kiss on TV and everything, I started realizing that, yeah, that was the job that I wanted, playing playing drums. There you go. Uh, you know, I, I tried guitar for a little bit, and it just didn't make sense to me. I just couldn't get my hands. Or it just didn't work. Yeah. I was like, uh, maybe I should switch to drums. So once you get to, uh, you get to Texas Tech, it's North Texas North University. Texas. It, was, it, was, it was North Texas State University forever. And uh, when I got there, it was North, North Texas State University. Uh, and then uh, it, it was uh, changed to University of North Texas, which it is right now. So where did, where did Rich Redmond go? He went to both Texas Tech and University of North Texas. Oh, did he? Yes. He, Rich went to Texas Tech for his undergrad. Oh, okay. Went to North Texas for his master's, and that's where Rich and I first met. Was at okay. uh, that's where I was trying to connect the dots of because I knew that you guys went to school together, or right. you know, knew each other through. And I was thinking, how did this? How yep. did the whole thing work? Okay, yeah, it goes a lot deeper than that. We can get into that later. <laughs> right. So you're uh, you're in college, and you're I guess you're trying to navigate the waters of exactly how you're going to make a career out of this uh, coming out of college. And I think that there's a lot of people that listen to this podcast that may be in the same situation. So how do you how do you suggest that these people start to to navigate through it? And how did you do it? Well, you know, showing up at at uh, North Texas, it uh, it was very intimidating. There was probably uh, there may have been 200 percussion music majors. There was a hundred incoming freshmen. You start looking at the numbers and you go, well, that doesn't make sense. Right. Half of the, uh, half of the class is always incoming freshmen. And then you start to realize who's graduating. And there's maybe like five or six people, you know, a, a semester maybe right. graduating. So you start to look at it and it, it, you know, it was really like, like, you know, an 80 or 90 percent, you know, dropout rate. So now are these people leaving because they're getting different opportunities or they're leaving because they couldn't handle it? I would say 70 percent of those people are leaving because they it because the the program was too demanding. Really? For them. Yeah. You know, there, there were occasionally there were some people that were what I'd like to call, you know, kind of, you know, North Texas lab band tourists. But, you know, you knew who they were pretty, uh, a lot of them were, you know, even older 
players, you know, they just wanted to come to North Texas because the, you know, the, the North Texas lab bands, you know, the one o'clock lab band, you know, has regularly won Grammys for its recordings as a, as a jazz band. It's right. not, I, that's the band know, that every, everybody hears about that. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you know, that there's pretty heavy jazz players that just want to come to North Texas and, uh, and play in the lab bands for a couple semesters. And that mm-hmm. happened, but I'm not really talking about those people. And mostly there's a lot of people that would come to school and, uh, realize it was a lot more demanding right. than they would have ever imagined. But, you know, I, I, I had a goal that I wanted to graduate and, uh, I, I started majoring in, in music education. I played on the university of North Texas drum line, uh, played in the percussion ensembles, wind ensemble, orchestra, uh, you know, the, the lab bands doing, I was doing basically everything I could do performance wise. And then, uh, you know, I just kept my feet moving and, uh, you know, ended up graduating with a degree in music education. Okay. So after you graduate, what was your, what was your next step? Well, it was pretty accidental. Um, I was living with some, some dudes, you know, off campus. And this one guy had gone to interview for a teaching job and, uh, he didn't get it. And, and, uh, there was uh, one of the other guy's girlfriends that, she had a job at the school and she said, well, Hey, she told me, she said, well, why don't you, uh, why don't you go, you know, see if you can get that job. Cause you'd be great for it. I wasn't even thinking about it, you know? Right. So I said, okay, I didn't even have a car. I didn't own a car. So I had to borrow the guy's car who didn't get the job <laughs> to go to the interview. And I <laughs> got this job and I was, uh, teaching, uh, it was, it was, uh, all of the percussion for the Capel independent school district. So Capel is right next to Irving, which is where Texas stadium is. Okay. Um, so it's pretty close to Dallas and that was a great job where I was, you know, teaching everything from sixth grade beginner classes to percussion ensemble, the drum line, mm-hmm. uh, private lessons, all that kind of stuff. And you were uh, how very, old at the time? It's like 24, 24. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it was a it was a great job. It was very rewarding, but uh, I, what I realized is that it was going to keep me from what my dreams and my goals were, which was I wanted to be a professional, you know, player for a living. Right. So, uh, you know, long story short, after one year, I quit that job and I, you know, I took the first thing that came along, which ended up kind of being a whole nightmare like job that I took, and uh, you know. I ended up moving to Nashville in 1997. And then, so once you got into Nashville, how'd you get hooked up with uh, Rascal Flats? Well, I moved to town. Uh, really didn't know anybody. Um, I, I had called uh, Eric Johnson from Innovative Percussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a you know he's a guy that I went to college with, and you know he had his company, and. Uh, he hooked me up with one of the, one of his guys that, you know, let me stay at his house for the weekend. Right. Um, and then, uh, I think, I think the next day I went to, uh, this, this drum shop that doesn't even exist anymore. And I, uh, I talked to the owner and tried, you know, I tried to see if he'd give me a job and, uh, he, he gave me a job. And then after he gave me a job, I kind of had this crazy request. I was like, well, I have no place to, to live right now. I said, do you think I could maybe just like stay at the shop, which 
it sounds like like totally crazy request <laughs> and like you know and he said yeah yeah sure so uh, at first I was like sling blade. They were like locking me in the shop at night, you know? <laughs> and then, uh, you know, later they, they gave me a key to the shop and I, I was, I was living there for a couple of months playing gigs and, uh, you know, uh, it was working out great until, you know, long story short, the, 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 the shop closed and I was kind of right back where I started where, you know, I didn't have any place to live. Right. So I was actually uh, living in my truck. So it was like, you know, talk about sounding like a country song. I was living in my pickup truck with my dog and my drums, you know, and I was playing gigs, you know, and uh, and then I ended up getting I ended up getting a job at uh, Pearl. Hmm. And I was I got a job at Pearl at the warehouse. I mean, the whole time, mind you, I'm playing like lots of little twenty dollar and forty dollar gigs and kind of stringing those together. And, uh, I was living in my truck for probably about two weeks. And then, uh, Rich, who, who I'd seen, uh, out of the club, uh, you know, we, we'd kind of reconnected and exchanged numbers. He called me, he actually sent me a page. We had pagers and he he paged me and I called him back and he said, Hey, I'm going out of town. Uh, I've got a cat, you know, would you watch my cat for me? I was like, yeah, sure. So he gave me the keys to his apartment and I basically, I just moved in. Right. So me and my dog moved in to his one bedroom apartment. And so two weeks later, you know, I'm like sleeping in his bed, you know, I got the whole thing, you know, worked out (laughs) and he comes home and, um, I said, well, so how much is your rent in this place? And he told me, and I just gave him like half of that in cash and just told him I was his new roommate. Nice. And so, and that's, you know, that's how we ended up being roommates for, you know, probably, you know, at least seven or eight months. Hmm. It's such an interesting. <laughs> just here, man. Here's some bread, and uh, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna stay here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, uh, I mean, we were both just so, uh, you know, so new to town, and mm-hmm. he could probably use the help with his rent, and I needed a place to live, and so, uh, so it worked out. Worked out pretty good. And it's amazing the things that that you were willing to go to or go through to reach your goals. And a lot of people, you know, a lot of people say that they want to be successful or that they want to do something, but you know, they don't, they don't really follow through on it. They won't do that. I was not leaving town. That that was, that was for sure. And I think that that happens to a lot of people. They, they move to Nashville and they, uh, they run out of resources, right. You know, and, uh, that was just not going to happen for me. I I was not going to, uh, leave, uh, I felt like too much momentum, so uh, I ended up living with Rich, and then uh, that's when I started working at Pearl, and I was picking up all the gigs I could. You know, uh, he and I were throwing back and forth. You know, a couple society gigs, playing weddings and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, I was playing these, you know, these pickup gigs on on, on Broadway in Nashville. And uh, that my first summer in town, I remember I played. I played downtown for uh, July 4th, you know, in front of like, you know, the, the whole city, but I mean, it didn't really change my career or anything, you right. know, right. I was just playing show band. Uh, and I played, you know, the first summer I, I kind of mopped up on a couple of gigs that were really like going South, you know, back then there were so many, uh, there were so many new artists coming out that if, if an artist, you know, if their career started faltering, 
players would tend to just jump on whatever the next thing was. Right. And you know, right. how times have changed. It's not that way anymore. I mean, anything that people pick up, they hold on to because there's just not as much stuff anymore. Right. But, you know, so the, the first, you know, year I just kind of, uh, you know, I, I worked, I worked hard, uh, at just networking and meeting players and I was working at Pearl and soon the, the job at Pearl just got in my way. Mm-hmm. And so I quit that job and just concentrated on stringing as many little, you know, gigs together as I could. And, uh, on one of those gigs, I got, um, I, I got hooked up with this bass player named Steve Ledford and Steve got a gig with, with Mark Chestnut, who was kind of a big country singer in the nineties. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he basically took me along with him. Nice. So, uh, they, they asked for his recommendation for a player and, uh, and they called me and then they came out and saw me and, 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 and all of a sudden two weeks later, I was out on the road with him. And so I did that gig for two years. Hmm. And you're, th- and at that point you're thinking, all right, maybe, maybe this could work a little bit. <laughs> well, I, I knew it was going to work. I just, uh, you know, I just had to, uh, I just had to, you know, keep, keep working at it. I mean, I will say this. I mean, I never doubted myself and my, uh, never doubted the fact that I, I felt like I was destined to do this, that I felt like this was the work that I was, that I really needed to be doing in my life. So, um, I was really happy to learn to, you know, to, to land that job with Mark. It was a fantastic, you know, first gig in Nashville for me. I mean, my very first gig with him, we flew up to New York before I even met him and, uh, went to an ABC studio and uh, we we actually recorded on the first season of The View, hmm. so uh, it was the very first season with uh, you know and Star you know, Jones and Barbara Walters and all that stuff. And uh, so did did the show, and so that was my my first that was basically my my audition gig was just like on live TV. Hmm. And then you know uh, you know the next couple gigs were you know I mean I think the third gig I played was you know at the Houston Astrodome. Wow. You know, it was huge. So uh, all of a sudden, I'm you know I'm you know on, on a tour bus and mm-hmm. you know kind of doing the job that I that I came to Nashville to do, which was uh, was fantastic. Uh, and, you know, '99, I started picking up some uh, some gigs with uh, Hank Williams the mm-hmm. Third, uh, which was kind of doing a rockabilly punkabilly thing, uh, and that was also fun. And uh, part of that year. With Mark, we were doing the uh, we were doing this Crown Royal tour, and one of the opening acts was this girl named Shelly Wright, and uh, I knew a bunch of the guys in her band, and uh, a couple of those guys started talking about you know trying to get a record deal, and uh, and that ended up being Joe Don and and Jay from Rascal mm-hmm. Flats, and so. We started playing gigs together the summer of 99, uh, and we were playing. I mean, I was playing gigs with Jay before that in 98, but like 90, by 99, like that summer, like me, Jay, Gary, and Jodon were playing like $40 pickup gigs in Printers right. Out in Nashville, you know, as just a cover band. And, uh, you know, then when, so when they got, their, they got their record deal, I was kind of a natural choice for them to... Uh, to call and to, to come out on the road with them. So I started with them in uh, 2000. I, 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 they, they called me and asked me if I would, I would uh, come out with them. And at 
the time they they know I've got a better job, right? you know, but, uh, they said, Hey, you know, if you want to take a chance on us, you know, we'd love to have you out here. So, uh, you know, I listened to the music and, uh, thought what they were doing was really tremendous. So I gave my two weeks notice to Mark and started playing with Rascal Flats in March of 2000. Now, when you set out to go to a certain town, were you, um, were you always thinking Nashville or was it, were you saying, oh, should I go to Nashville? Should I go to L.A.? Should I go to New York? No, that's exactly what I did. And that's a really great question because uh, uh, early on I was thinking, well, you know, especially I'm at North Texas and I'm living in Dallas. And Dallas is a really, you know, it's got a good local scene. Uh, you know, Austin's got a great local scene. There's a lot of things to do in Texas. But, uh, you know, I just started looking at it and going, just being realistic and just saying, you know, I'm going to have to go somewhere else if I'm going to want to make a living. And I'd lived up in the Northeast and, you know, I, I wasn't, you know, really interested in trying to live, you know, in Manhattan. Right. You know, and, and uh, you know, living outside of there, you know, it's just such a commute to get into town. I just, uh, it, it just, it didn't seem like the right choice for me. And somehow I figured after all that was said and done, I would end up on Broadway. Right. And I, uh, I, I, I didn't really see that even, and that's a great career by the way, but right. I just didn't see that as what I wanted to do. And somehow I figured that's probably, if I go to Nashville, if I go to New York, I'm going to end up on Broadway. Right. And so do I want to do that? And I went, yeah, you know, I love Broadway stuff, but no, I don't think that's what I want to do. Right. Uh, so I, you know, I similarly, similarly looked at LA it's tremendously expensive. It's very spread out. And, uh, you know, then, uh, I started looking at Nashville, you know, it was like the early nineties. I was finishing up college. Uh, I, I ended up meeting Larry London, mm-hmm. uh, great Larry London who would, you know, for 20 years had been, you know, the biggest session guy in Nashville. And before that had, you know, played with everyone from, you know, uh, he played, uh, on, on Motown records, which a lot of people don't know about, which is crazy because he was just some he was just some little white kid, you know, that just right. stumbled into some of these studios and and had such talent that, you know, he was playing on some records, um, which is insane. He would played with Elvis. He played, you know, by then he'd already played on Steve Perry's solo record and Journey's Raised on Radio. And uh, I was like, man, this guy is uh, is seriously diverse. He played on a- 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 Adrian. Uh, blues record uh just done a lot of really uh really tremendous things with his career and and was you know by the way the top session guy in nashville so i was like i gotta meet this guy so um so i ended up going to the strum clinic that he was at and uh and you know I, i i went early to meet him and he was really fantastic and uh you know, uh, he was really nice to me and gave me his phone number. And, uh, you know, it didn't all end up the way that I wanted to because, uh, you know, that day was actually the day that he, um, that he had, you know, whatever kind of heart attack or whatever that he had that day. And he, he went into a coma that he never recovered in. The day, so I was that, like, the day that yeah, you met him? The day that I met him. So it was really like the, uh, it was really like, you know, the, the last, I was like the last person to have like a lengthy conversation with, uh, with Larry. Really?
Um, yeah, which is, you know, kind of trippy, but, uh, you know, he was so nice to me. Uh, you know, it, it kind of set the tone for what I kind of, what I believe Nashville was going to be like. Right. And, uh, it was, it was. And, uh, when, when, when I heard that story, you know, when people heard my story about, about meeting Larry, uh, when I talked to people that had later moved early, that had moved to town earlier, they're like, oh yeah, that's exactly what Larry told me. And he took me on sessions and, you know, he was, uh, he had such a, uh, a great spirit about him. Uh, he, uh, he really understood, you know, the, the whole communal thing that the drummers have. And, right. you know, he had a drum shop here and, you know, mostly for the fact that he probably wanted to just hang out in it and, you know, right. talk to drummers. Right. Right. So, uh, you know, so I, I, uh, I, I've been very fortunate in Nashville. I started playing with Rascal Flatts in, uh, 2000 and, um, you know, here we are 14 years later and, uh, you know, still, still going. Well, I have a couple questions about Rascal Flatts, but I want to ask you something before that. Um, so there's a lot, you know, there's, there's people out there now that are saying, okay, well, I need to move to one of these, um, to one of these towns. And what advice do you have for people that are, that are going to move or things that they should consider before they make the move? Well, Nashville, the good, one of the good things about Nashville is it's, uh, not as expensive as those other two places that we mentioned. So, um, but you still need to have some money in place just to survive. Um, you know, uh, just, just have, you know, coming to town, it would be better if you, you know, you had, you know, some, some months of expenses kind of built up because you need to do a lot of networking that you're not going to end up getting paid for, you know? Um, so having some money put aside to do something like that, uh, would be helpful. Uh, being as absolutely diverse as possible, uh, you know, knowing your craft as well as you can is, is obviously a must for any town that Mm -hmm. you're going to, you know, because you can't count on being, you know, uh, just a rock drummer or just a country drummer or just a metal drummer, you know, uh, to, you've got to be able to play absolutely all styles of music. And, uh, you know, when you come to Nashville, you certainly have to understand country. And one of the interesting things about country is it's got a, a really rich sense of history. And, you know, no matter, you know, even if you're playing with, uh, you know, the most modern act here in town, you know, you, you, you really have to have a handle on where the music came from, um, you know, so understanding, you know, what, what the country music sounded like in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and 80s. And uh, so, you know, just doing some listening, uh, knowing the repertoire. Uh, bef- the two years before I moved to Nashville, I lived in Kansas City uh, and I was uh, working at a drum shop and I was uh, playing with a percussion ensemble and playing in a band with a guy. But uh but the other gig that I had was I was playing for like two years straight. I played this, you know, country bar dive up in Kansas city, playing nothing but kind of old country music. And it prepared me so well for going to Nashville because, you know, when I moved to Nashville, I may have been this guy with long hair, you know, from new England. But, uh, when, uh, when they heard me play and they realized that I knew the tunes and I could sing and I could sing harmonies and I could tell the bass player the changes, mm-hmm. you know, 
they're like, wow, this guy really knows this music inside and out. Right. That actually leads into my to my next question a little bit about Rascal Flatts. Um, you're you're the drummer, but you're also the music director. Right. Right. So what does that entail versus just being the drummer? Well, I mean, a musical director on any job is 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 the one that has got to deal with uh, a, a lot of musical details. I mean, first thing, the most obvious thing is that uh, you know hiring the musicians mm-hmm. uh, that we we have. I mean, of course, you know, Rascal Flatts, you know, has the final say on all that stuff. But uh, you know, m- most of the musicians that we've hired are, are people that I you know gathered up, recommended, or had auditioned for the job, and. Uh, you know, so hiring the musicians, you know, maintaining them, uh, preparing the preparing the band for, uh, you know, if, if we add m- new music, you know, I'm the one that's getting them the music. Uh, we have three multi-instrumentalists, so I'm, I'm also, you know, kind of assigning parts, mm-hmm. making sure that, you know, the right people are playing, uh, you know, the right instruments kind of playing to our strengths and giving us the, the, the fullest sound for the amount of people that we have. Um, in the band, I mean, everything from, uh, you know, running sound check to, uh, writing charts to, uh, interfacing with guest artists. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the last couple of years I've been doing, uh, some, some mix supervision. Like, you know, I was mix supervisor on the, uh, the Rascal Flats journey crossroads and, you know, some different European things that we've done. I got you. And, uh, yeah, it's just, it, it, you know, any of the tracks that we're running, I'm kind of in, in, in you know, I've got to make sure to, to, uh, be able to get that, create that stuff and maintain all of that stuff. And, uh, you know, really just being a, uh, being the source of communication between Rascal Flats and, and the band. Right. And making sure that uh, I mean, he's got they, they've, they've got a great open relationship with all the band members. But there's certain things you just don't want to have to say five times. You right, know? Right. So, uh, you know, I, I you know, I, I'm definitely the, the person that's trying to keep in contact with them and make sure that they're happy uh, writing, you know, small set list, uh, advising on, on, on the tour set list, writing introductions to 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 songs, uh, arrangements of songs, uh, outros to songs. Uh, I, I wrote the, uh, the, the whole introduction to our last three tours, uh, you know, so there's okay. like, you know, there's sometimes up to the, the last three years I've written the introduction, you know, for our show. So probably the, the, the first, you know, two to five minutes of music that you heard at the show was actually music that I wrote, you know, as an introduction to the last three tours. That's interesting. So I know that a lot of people, you know, they, they always say the way that the way to the gig is through the MD or, or, you know, getting to the, getting to the music director. How do you suggest that people network and, and get themselves out there to MDs, you know, across the country that are looking for a drummer or a guitar player or something like that? Well, you know, uh, Today's, today's MDs are just yesterday's drummers and guitar players and bass players and keyboard players, you know, so right. uh, it, it's really easy to, to build a terrible, uh, you know, a, a terrible reputation. You just got to come into town and be a jerk. And even if you play great, you, you just kind of expect like, hey, I play great. Where's my gig? Right. You know, and just be better 
And those types of reputations absolutely spread like wildfire. Uh, but good reputations, um, they spread, you know, one gig at a time, one jam session at a time, uh, one great conversation at a time. So when I came to town and I advised the same thing, you know, I, I went to jam sessions. Uh, I went to, uh, you know, to gigs that I felt like there was some sort of chance that I might be able to sit in, just meet people, be patient, be humble. You know, there was a lot of times I would, I would sit out in the audience and then like, uh, and I would, the next, that night I would go introduce myself to the, to the bass player. And then the next night I would go out and I'd watch them and I'd sit all night and watch them. And he'd look at me every once in a while. And then he'd go, you know, at the end of the night, uh, oh man, I didn't get a chance to get you up. And then I'd come out the next night and I go, oh, man, I got to get this guy up. He's just kind of, you know, he, he knows he feels trapped at this point, you know. Right. But then, <laughs> I, you know, so it's like very end of the night when nobody's there, you know, get me up. And then all of a sudden they realize, wow, this guy's a great player. The next time I walk in the club, you know, they're like, hey, Jim, come on up here. Right, right. You know, and, uh, you know, so it's like my patience had paid off. Uh, you know, if I'd gotten really frustrated and feeling like, you know, uh, you know, who are they to treat me like that? You know, mm-hmm. then it just would, wouldn't have worked out nearly as well. Um, so, yeah, I just tried to build my reputation, you know, one one uh, jam session at a time, you know, one gig at a time, one conversation at a time. And and until that, you know, it, it uh, started to spread organically. Now, if they said that, OK, you have to find a replacement for yourself. We want you to, you know anything something you need do you need a replacement for yourself for rascal flats what would you look for in in the drummer uh i probably wouldn't do that but uh let's say uh <laughs> like 10, 10 well you know 10 years ago uh when you know when I, when i got married uh i had i you know i had a sub come in but basically what i did was we were on tour with toby keith and uh, so I had Dave McAfee that plays with Toby Keith. I had him sub for me. He's the only person that's ever subbed with Rascal Flatts, you right. know. Um, and uh, what I what I did with him was I knew I knew obviously, you know, my my uh, my wedding was a set date, so I knew uh, you know when that was going to be happening. So I brought I just brought Dave in every every uh, sound check and just had him jam with the band. And uh, he's a pro, man. Right. So you know he gets he gets the job. He approaches the gig differently than I do, I'm sure. But uh, but you know it, it was uh, it was great to have somebody like that uh, to be able to pinch hit for me. Now, as far as you know, attributes that that I look for in a drummer, if I'm recommending you know somebody for a job, or I was going to say, let me rephrase that and say maybe you're you know somebody asks you to build a band for them and they say, can you put yeah, the whole which band I've, together? I've done, you know right. what. Uh, and, you know, I mean, I'm looking for a drummer that is extremely solid, plays great time, understands his role as a drummer uh, in the band, which is to keep solid time to play, you know, uh, fills that are appropriate for the song, not just, uh, you know, what the drummer, you know, is feeling like playing, uh, that has a, uh, a, a deep diverse understanding of music so that, you know, if they want to go from playing, uh, you know, playing a country song to playing a shuffle to playing, you know, a samba, that they can do that, Mm -hmm. you know, Uh, because I'm going to look for someone that's like a reflection of myself that, you know, like 
I don't want to, you know, give them someone and go, yeah, you know, we tried to do something different and we kind of fell on our face. Right. Um, you know, and, and, and most of all, someone that's got a great attitude, that loves what they're doing, that has a passion for uh, playing music. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know a lot of uh, a lot of people out there get stuck in this, you know, in one thing like we were talking about before. I'm a rock drummer or I'm a or I'm a heavy metal drummer or something like that. And then, you know, then if they go into a Sama, it just sounds like a heavy metal drummer trying to play some. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. The, your, your, your luck runs out after a while, you know, right. and I see it a lot with guys that were in the rock world and they experienced some sort of success as a, you know, rock drummer had a, had kind of a moment as a rock star. And then when that's all over, uh, you know, if you don't have the tools to, to, to survive, uh, to be diverse, uh, you know, let's just say you're, you're, you're into building, but you can only build birdhouses right. and birdhouses go out of style. You know, <laughs> right. you want to be able to take your building uh, tools and be able to build a house or build a garage or build a skyscraper. You know, you want to be able to build whatever needs to be built. Right. So to do that, you know, as a drummer, you've just got to be uh, as diverse as possible, ready, ready for anything, ready for anything. That is the that's the key. So I always ask what what one piece of uh, advice that you have for people to, if you if if they said you could you could give dr- upcoming drummers one piece of advice what would it be? I would definitely say practice hard while you can uh, while you still have time. Mm-hmm. You know if you're in school and uh, you know and or you're single and you don't have a family and you don't have a mortgage and you don't have car payments that all demand that you're making a living. If you've got time to practice, you know, practice hard because practice time becomes a lot rarer when you've got all of those things, you know, plus, uh, you know, like with me, I've got my whole teaching practice, you know, which we can definitely talk about. Um, but, uh, I would definitely say practice while you have time. Mm -hmm. I remember when I was in college, they uh, some guys came in and did a master class, and one of the guys said, "Practice as much as you can right now because you'll never have as much time as you do right now to practice." And you know what? I I, I always I was really diligent at practicing anyway, but I'm thinking in my head, I was like, "Well, there'll always be you know there'll always be time for practice." Then I got older and I said, "Man, I wish I." I wish everybody could could heed that guy's advice and know that yeah. your time your practice time gets gets smaller and smaller. Well, you had mentioned your, your, uh, your teaching practice. Let's get into that. Cause I always like to know, you know, what I know that you're extremely busy with rascal flats, but you like everybody else, uh, is a, you're a hustler. So I know you have a bunch of different things going on. So let's talk about that. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I've always, I've always taught, I've got my degree in music education. Um, and I always knew that I was going to get back to, to teaching, uh, I've taught on and off throughout the years, uh, but about you know seven years ago when I, when my wife and I built the house that we live in now, uh, we we built it, you know, with the express purpose that the basement uh, was going to be my percussion studio. Mm-hmm. So got a you know beautiful percussion studio downstairs, and uh, you know started a uh, a program that I call the Drum Dojo, and uh, basically what it is is it's a uh, it's a program from sixth grade to 12th grade uh, where it's, uh, it's group lessons. You know, I, I, do, I do private lessons and, you know, 
they're uh, they're a little more expensive than you know a sixth grader can handle. Right, but right. Uh, if you put you know five sixth graders in a room, you know, uh, you know I I can teach them for a lot less money per per kid. Per person, right. And so uh, there's a lot of great advantages to it. The kids enjoy spending time with each other. We we do an hour lesson, you know, from sixth grade on. So these kids are playing snare drum. They're playing, you know, marimba and they're playing a drum set from, you know, the earliest age. Right. And so I'm taking these kids all the way from sixth grade through 12th grade. And, uh, you know, at, as a matter of fact, this year, my, my, the first year that I started sixth graders are now 12th graders and they're going to college, you know, That's uh, awesome. and this is the third group of kids that I've, I've, I've got that are, they're all going to, to school to major in music. So I've got two, I've got four kids right now, two from two years ago, two from last year that are all, you know, at, at Middle Tennessee and Belmont and, right. uh, you know, that are that are studying uh, music right now. And so I do that. Uh, I, uh, I do a lot of uh, I do a lot of uh, private lessons. I've got I've got one that's actually supposed to start this very minute, but I'll probably stop and uh, tell them that I'm going to be a couple minutes late. <laughs> Sorry uh, about that. And no, no, that's all right. It's a Skype lesson, so I'll probably just get off and get right back on with you, and we'll finish up. But um, and then you know, I, I, I teach you know live lessons for you know players that you know are moving to town and they 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 want to you know gain some gain some uh, some knowledge of 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 you know from my experience uh, you know being a, a drummer in Nashville. So uh, I, I do a lot of lessons like that as well. You know, something else we can talk about, get into, uh, talk a little bit about my Nashville number system book, which I think would be really cool. Man, I got to I gotta tell you, I bought the book. I went through the whole entire thing. And it, first of all, it's a great book. It's amazing. And I know, I now know the Nashville number system, which I'm happy because I've always wanted to learn it. And uh, it was just something that I never, you know, I read, but I never, I never learned that. And I never took the time to learn it when I was in college or after college. So I was, when I saw that you came out with that book, I was like, you know what, I'm going to get this book and I got, it. it's great. It really is. So, well, thank you very much. Absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, when I, when I moved to Nashville, I started immediately seeing the Nashville number system and started going, Oh, okay. I, I get what's going on here because it looked to me a lot like, uh, the Roman numeral analysis and figured base that I'd studied. Right in college only without the Roman numerals. So, uh, as a matter of fact, the first, the first charts that I wrote for myself, I was writing them in Roman numerals. Hmm. And, that, and then I thought like, well, that's goofy. You know, no one's going to want to read that. Right, right. So, uh, so I, I just, you know, I kind of relented and started writing, you know, in uh, Arabic numbers and, uh, and boy, that the system just really resonated with me. I mean, uh, a lot because I have, you know, I've got a really good ear. So, um, you know, being able to pick those chords out, you know, was, was pretty was pretty easy for me. Now, for the people that don't know what the Nashville number system is, it's a very simple system. Um, basically, if you were to take, um, like if you ever saw the mo- movie Sound of Music where they've got the doe, a deer, a female deer, ray, a pocket, you know, that whole song, do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do, that's that's a language, uh, musical language called solfege, and basically what it does is it assigns a uh, a syllable to each 
scale degree. Mm-hmm. So you got do for one, re uh, for two, mi for fa. So it's do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one. So what the Nashville number system does is it just takes those scale degrees and instead of assigning a syllable, it just assigns a number to it. So if uh, the, the root is is one, that's one, two, three, four, five, you know, and all the way up. Now you can have, you know, the flats and the sharps to create all 12 uh, uh, scale degrees. But uh, basically, uh, you know, the most common chords that you're ever going to hear in a song are one, four, and five. But we can take that and move it to any, any key. So um, when you're reading a Nashville number system chart, all you're doing is you're, you're realizing that each number you see is a, is a, uh, a chord to be played for one measure. So if it, you see a one there, the band's going to play a major one chord. You know, the next measure that you see a four, uh, they're going to play a four chord. And next measure is a one. They're going to play a one. Next, next measure is going to be a five. Well, that's a four bar phrase. So then you'd go down and you'd write another four bar phrase. So the, the greatest thing about the number system as a drummer is when you look at it, you can see the phrasing of the entire song, you know, out on the, uh, on the page. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so you get a really fantastic overview of what you're supposed to do with the song. And uh, so if people are interested, they can go to uh, www.thenashvillenumbersystem.com. That's my, uh, my website. And there's a preview of the first chapter that really kind of explains what I just uh, explained in more depth. But it also gives you audio example because there's audio examples that go through the uh, the whole book that mm-hmm. make it really simple. You know, I didn't write this book as a drummer book. I wrote this book as a book for all rhythm section players, but I wrote it in a way that I felt that drummers could easily understand it. Right. And, you know, like I said earlier, speaking from uh, experience, it's definitely one. It's a it's not a book that it that it takes, you know, six months to work through. Right. Which, which I thought was great. Um, and just a, a ton of knowledge and it definitely it definitely helps when just charting stuff out really quick too if you just know oh, the yeah. form of the tune you know and you may not need to know all the chord changes that were just like okay i just need to figure out the the rough well yeah and I, that's something i deliberately waited till chapter 10 to talk about that right. because i didn't want the drummers <laughs> to give up on the music theory right. but the truth is that there is some secrets in the book that I, that i won't reveal now that drummers will love, uh, and it, and it will give you a whole new charting system that, uh, is so easy for drummers and so precise that, uh, you know, you'll never go back to writing eight bars verse fill, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's just, uh, it's much better this way. Um, but, uh, as a matter of fact, I just talked to my publisher, and uh, we've we've got to go into a second printing now, finally, because they've uh, we're, we're I think we're about 150 buck, uh, books from selling out the first printing. So that's awesome. I'm going to make a couple of very thank you. Going to make a couple of very minor changes, very mm-hmm. minor changes, uh, corrections, and uh, put out the uh, the second printing uh, in in about two months. It's awesome. Well deserved too. It's a great book, and I'll link. Um, 
every time I do one of these podcasts, I have show notes so they can go to drummersresource.com and under your, your interview, it'll have all of your links on there and all the, all cool. your contact information, all that stuff. To yeah, make sure yeah, that, yeah. Make sure that people uh, can get their hands on that. And the one thing about the Nashville number system, and I think that you agree with this, that it's not a replacement to learning music. Uh, it's not a replacement to standard notation. Right. Um, but I'll say this standard notation is no match for the number system in certain situations. Um, and I'll give you uh, a great example. Um, this is going to sound real name droppy, but this is just the way that it was. Right. So Rascal Flatts was doing this, uh, this benefit concert and Stephen, uh, not Stephen Foster. I was, I just was looking at some old Stephen Foster songs, David Foster. <laughs> um, but I was, I was, I was looking up the lyrics to Oh Susanna, true story, Stephen Foster. When you, when you called me, I was looking, I was doing notes from the John Robinson interview that I did the other day. And when you called, I almost was like, hey, John, what's happening, man? How are you? Yeah. Um, well, so I, I did this David Foster gig, and John was there, and Nathan East was there. And uh, Rascal Flatts had done this, um, this duet with Lionel Richie. So um, David Foster's musical director called me up, and his arranger, and... Uh, and was like, uh, he started asking me about the arrangement, what we were doing. I, I told him, I said, well, there's a great version on Lionel's solo record of Dancing on the Ceiling, and that's the one that the guys are doing. And if you want my guys to just be able to come in and nail it, just do the version from, from uh, Lionel's duets record. And, and so he said, okay. So he starts, you know, into the process of charting out everything. He's writing out the drum parts and he's writing out the bass parts and he's writing out the guitar parts and he's doing this in finale. And I mean, he's the guy's working for weeks. And then, you know, Lionel calls him up about two weeks before. And this is absolutely true. It says, I can't do it in that key. So we got to move it down a little mm. bit. So now he's got to take everything that he's written in the key of say E and he's got to transpose it all to E flat which isn't, you know, the biggest pain, but it's certainly, you know, he's got to go through everything and do it over again. Right. Um, except for the drum part. And uh, so we get there and, uh, and they're, they're playing and the bridge, the, the, the kicks in the bridge are not written correctly. Um, you know, I could go through every detail of exactly what it was, but the, the kicks in the bridge were not written correctly. And then after the bridge, there was this, it was like there was this four bars of like, it was almost like metadata. It was just like, just, <laughs> it was like four bars that were literally not in the song that were on their chart. And so I went, am I really going to have to be the guy that's going to walk up on stage while David Foster's doing his thing? And, and do I really have to be the guy to go up there and fix this? Right. And I'm like, well, somebody's got somebody's to, apparently, you this. know, right. so I had to go up there and, oh my guys, they still love to give me crap for like, oh yeah, yeah. I remember that time that, you know, you like went and pushed David Foster off the piano <laughs> and, you know, and I'm like, oh God, you know, but the truth is I just, I care about it being right. Was he and, cool and about it? David? No, not no. really. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, John Robinson was, you know, he is just the coolest guy, greatest drummer, you know, and he was fantastic. And I, I explained the kicks to, to him 
And then uh, everybody, you know, jumped on because it's world class band, you know, right. Nathan East playing bass and bass, and you know, all these guys. And and, and uh, actually, Rascal Flatts' original keyboard player, Bo Cooper, was actually also in that band and still in that band, and uh, he was great as well. Um, but uh, you know, I, I I had to you know kind of explain it, and it was he said, well, he said, well, what are the chords? And I'm going, and 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 I was like, well, what key are you playing it in? You know, because I didn't know. Right, right, right. You know. And, and I think, you know, just the idea of the number system is just so foreign to people in L.A. I mean, I have so many stories like this. So, in other words, they, they had worked on these arrangements, writing these arrangements for weeks. And each page chart was four pages long. Right. And, you know, I mean, and I could write a, a chart for that song and I have written a chart for that song that fits on one page that everybody in the band could read. And literally do a better job than what what they had, because when you really think about it, if you've got like J John Robinson, do you really need to tell John Robinson exactly every note what to play, or you just need to give him enough of a detailed roadmap that he knows what to do? Right. You know, you don't need to write doom ga doom doom ga doom ga doom doom dagadat. Right. Please, John Robinson invented Doom Dagadat. You know, he doesn't need you to tell him, uh, you know, what parts to play. So right. in that case, uh, and it's completely transposable, you know, a national number system chart blows away a standard notation chart 90% of the time when it comes to stuff like that. Now, if you're writing out, you know, YYZ, it's going to be a lot easier in standard notation. Right. Uh, because when you've got a lot of melodic lines, uh, that stuff is going to work a lot better um, in standard notation. But when you're talking about chords and you're talking about, uh, you know, just regular pop songs from, mm. you know, from from metal to country to rock, you know, anything that's just a regular popular music song, National Number System absolutely is the most efficient uh, system and that's the way I like to think about it. It's the right tool for the job. Right, 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 right. That makes total sense. Makes total sense. So, what other stuff do you have? Uh, do you have going on? Let's. Uh, anything else you'd like to talk well, about? Yeah, you know, right now we're 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 uh, we're off the road um, with uh, we're off the road from Rascal Flats, so we're just playing like you know maybe. One one gig, one one or two gigs a month right now. Mm -hmm. And let me ask so, you, not to interrupt you, but do you do do you do the typical Nashville touring uh, thing where you guys we, do? We, we uh, you know, we practically invented it, man. We're right. we're like weekend warriors, man. Right. Can, can you explain that for the for the yeah. people that don't understand what I'm talking about? It's very, you know, it's very simple. If you're if you're in New York or you're in L.A., okay. Once you start touring, like if you're in L.A. and then you get through the desert and all of a sudden you're to Denver. Mm -hmm. It's too far to go back. Right. You know what I'm saying? You can't go back. So you just <laughs> We've reached the keep, point of no return. Just, you just got to keep touring and touring and touring and touring. You know, Nashville is not in the geographical center of the United States. That I believe that's Kansas. But um, it is very close to what I would consider the population center of the United States. So right. if you take Nashville and you, and you put a pin in Nashville and then you take a piece of string that represents a 12 hour radius, you can get everywhere 
from, you know, you can get to southern New England, you can get to Texas, you can get to Florida, you can get to Detroit. You know, there's a lot of places you can get in a, in, in a night. So we can start a tour and, and drive, you know, for 10 hours the first night, four hours the next night, six hours the next night, and six hours home. Right. You know, and so that's the way we do it. It's all weekend stuff. You know, we don't have to stay out because geographically it's, you know, we, we just don't have to do that. So that's one of the beautiful things about uh, touring out of Nashville. And, you know, the other thing is, uh, you know, like the first year we started was the first was the year that Gary's uh, our lead singer's uh, daughter was born. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, he basically told the booking agents, he said, listen, you can book all you want, but if you book me to be gone for more than two weeks, he says, you know, you can plan on doing it without me. Because right. I won't be there. Right. You know? <laughs> so he let the gauntlet down, like, early. Like, this is going to be a family-oriented thing, and we're going to spend time and have a life. Right. And uh, so that's just the way that it's been for us. So you usually do, what, bus call, you know, Wednesday? Wednesday. So I teach Monday, or... Tuesday, Wednesday. Right. I have a Wednesday night bus call, um, I usually at, like, 10 o'clock or midnight. Uh, 10 o'clock more you lately. Uh, and then, uh, you know, we'll go play Wednesday and then Thursday, you know, I, I might be someplace teaching lessons all day because right. we don't do sound check. So, um, I, I might teach lessons all day, Thursday and Friday, and then I'll do a clinic Saturday afternoon, but I'll play a gig Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, and then, uh, come home Sunday morning hmm. just in time to watch some football. There you go. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, it works great. But, you know, as far as other projects, uh, what I'm doing is uh, I'm uh, finishing up a book uh, for uh, Alfred right now. Uh, and it's called, uh, I, I believe we're calling it Survival Guide for the Modern Drummer. Uh, but what it is, is it's a book on, uh, it's a comprehensive book on styles. So it starts with uh, with with pop styles and it goes to... Uh, to, to swing and blues and country. And I try to cover some stuff that, you know, usually gets marginalized in other books. So there's a big country section in there. There's a big metal section in there. There's a big dance section in there. Um, and, uh, you know, in addition to the things that you'd expect, you know, more of the blues and the funk right, right, right. And, uh, and, and the rock and the swing, there's a really big swing section in there. Because I, I believe that it's important for players to have a really good base of knowledge in, uh, in all of these areas. And so uh, I'm working hard to create, you know, the most authentic listening environment for people to play along with. You know, so, you know, instead of just, you know, locking six musicians in a room for a week to record you know, every style imaginable, right. I'm taking my time and I, you know, I'm in Nashville. So I had the best country musicians in the world playing on this country section. And then when I did my metal section, you know, I, I called one of my metal head buddies and we, you know, we, we tuned everything down to D and C and did a bunch of really chunky metal tracks, right. you know? And when I do the, uh, you know, the New Orleans second line stuff, there'll be clarinets and tubas and it's going to feel like really authentic. Uh, and you know, when, when I'm doing the jazz stuff, which is the next stuff I'm doing, you know, I'm, I've hired the best jazz musicians, uh, that I can, that I can find. And so I'm going to try to make sure that every, uh, musical genre feels as authentic, uh, as possible for the drummers that are playing along with this stuff. And, you know, the, the way that I write 
very easy to understand these grooves and there's going to be a, a, a ton of grooves, but it's going to be the kind of book that if you go through this book, you're going to be at least ready to do, to cover any style. Uh, and then, you know, as you, as you get into it, you know, I encourage people to, you know, to explore every genre further, right. but this will give you a really good overview uh, of everything. And that's why it's called the survival guide. That's awesome. That's such a good idea because I think that, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the instructional books that you hear out there are just kind of, I don't want to say faking it, but it's, it's not authentic and it's not, you know, some of the, some of the Samba, especially some of like the, the Samba stuff that you, that you learn, uh, you know, yeah. you get, you start playing that on a gig and people are going to be like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. What, what are you playing here? You know? Yeah. Well, you know, I've got a slightly different slant on it in that like, um, I, I try to make sure that the uh, when, when you when you look at playing Afro-Cuban styles on on the drum set, I think that people get really hung up on what they consider to be the quintessential uh, you know versions of these things. But you have to remember when you know if you're playing a samba and you're being uh, authentic. You wouldn't have a drum set. You'd right. have a certo, mm -hmm. and you know you'd be you know in Brazil, you know uh, you know playing at Carnival. You know um, you know the samba is not a drum set uh, style. You know you know there's there's a lot of I mean you know uh, sango is a drum set style. Right. Um, you know that's like one of the only you know uh, you know styles that was written that the groove that's kind of the quintessential groove was written, you know, uh, by a drum set player, but everything else is an adaption. So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to make sure that I'm presenting, uh, the most drum set friendly adaptions. Uh, you know, my, my take on it is that like, um, if I play, like like a Naningo, which is a right. which is twelve a, you know there are versions that people consider sacred and authentic, but you know, authentic compared to what? I mean, you know, like an African. I played in an African ensemble, and and you know, there was not a drum set in that group, right. you know. So everything is it, it's all about adaption, and I'm making sure that the the the, the versions that I present are the most uh, comfortable on the drum set and uh, making sure that I include, I, I, I'm always true to the, uh, you know, to, to the things like what makes a samba a samba? What really right. makes a samba a samba is boom, 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 you got to make sure you've got that in there. Um, but uh, you know, if I'm playing a street samba, it's going to be a lot different than if I'm playing uh, a samba with a uh, with a with a three piece jazz group, which is going to be different than if I'm going to play it with a uh, with a big band. Mm -hmm. You know, all of which I've done, but I'm giving people some different options. You know, uh, I, I just have a little bit of a issue sometimes with the authentic police, just because you know I think that sometimes people are, are trying to hold sacred. Uh, versions of, uh, of of grooves 
that are really just adaptions. Right, because a lot of the, because a lot of the stuff wasn't invented on the drum set anyway. Most of it wasn't. Right, um, but uh, you know that rarely comes into play. That there's a couple things in the world in the world styles that are that way, but most of the stuff, um, you know, it's really it's my slant, it's my take. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, uh, I've got an uh, I've got a preview of some stuff. Uh, I, I I let a couple things out from my country section. Uh, in uh, Modern Drummer, not this one that just, there's one that just came out with, uh, with Mike uh, Johnson on the cover. Oh, okay. There's one that's Mike Johnson's going to be on the cover. The one after that um, is, uh, I- I've got an article in that one that is, uh, is a kind of a little bit of a preview from that, from that book. And I'm oh, going to awesome. do, and I'm going to do some, uh, a, a video uh, for Modern Drummer for that as well. Great, but you know that's that's like you know I'm going. I've seen books where they go. You know the only thing they ever do for country is they'll put like a train beat, and it'll be the simplest train beat. Uh, and so what I did was I said, you know what? I think I I did ten different, very unique variations of a train beat, and so uh, that was something that I uh, I just thought I would write up for Modern Drummer. Awesome. So. You know, so I put that in. There. When are you expecting that book to come out? Hoping that book will be out uh, for Summer Nam in July. You know, okay. uh, all the book is done. I was talking, you know, talking to uh, my engraver yesterday. Uh, I, I uh, I've just got a lot more uh, audio examples to record. Right. I've got about thirty percent of the audio examples done. So over the next six weeks, I've got a uh, buckle down and get all my audio examples done. And, uh, you know, then I've got the arduous task of just kind of going through that mountain of stuff, <laughs> but I'm looking forward to it. Right. And, uh, if anyone wants to, you know, figure out, uh, what I'm doing, what I'm up to, uh, my website is, uh, is, uh, www.jimreillymusic.com. Um, uh, I've got a, a website up right now, and uh, my, my web designer, which is a guy named Danny Handler at Design Core in uh, Austin, uh, he, uh, he's a drummer, which is why I say he's a guy I went awesome. to North Texas with. Uh, he's, doing my, he's doing my website, <coughs> uh, my new website right now, which is going to include like a store and just a lot of different uh, you know, ways to get in touch with me. It's going to have all the portholes to all the... Uh, all the social media and all that stuff. Right, right, right. Awesome. And like I said, all this stuff will be uh, will be linked on the uh, yeah, 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 totally on the website. So that way, you know, if uh, you're easy to find, but if they if they can't find you, they can always find you, know, you some, at drumsresource.com yeah, too. It's not as easy as it looks sometimes. So right. uh, <laughs> it's always good to to give people a little bit of help in that direction. Absolutely. Well, Jim, thank you so much for for spending all the time with us today, man. I really appreciate you answering uh, all these questions and and shedding some light on on the inner workings of Nashville and 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 how things work, especially for someone of your caliber. And I know that the listeners really appreciate it as well. Well, uh, anytime, you know, uh, I'm I, I try to be as accessible as possible, you know. So if uh, people people reach out to me on uh, on Facebook, that's a really great place to get in touch with me, or they can go to my website. But, uh, you know, I, I, I try to be someone that is, uh, is very accessible. So if people have questions out there, they, they want to be able to communicate with me, you know, uh, they can, 
they can uh, find me, you know, via social media, and uh, I promise that I will uh, get back to you. That's awesome. Great. Well, Jim, thank you again so much. Uh, like I said, I really appreciate it, and I'll be talking to you soon. Thanks a lot. So that was the very inspiring, the very talented, the very humble Jim Riley. You can check him out at jimreillymusic.com or you can check us out drummersresource.com forward slash session 20 and that'll have all the information that you can reach Jim. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash drummersresource or you can get at us on Instagram at drummersresource or me directly at nick underscore Rafini. And don't forget, if you go to bosodrumsticks.com, you can get 15% off of your order just by using the promo code PODCAST, P-O-D-C-A-S-T. So bosodrumsticks.com, the world's first full line of bamboo drumsticks, 15% off by entering the promo code PODCAST. And if you don't mind, share this with your friends, leave a review on iTunes, leave us a message on iTunes. Send us a message and let us know what you'd like to hear on the podcast. This is a community, and, and I want to know what we can do to make the, the uh, podcast better. So please let us know. Thank you so much for listening. I truly appreciate it. Keep drumming, and I'll talk to you next week. We have Eric Moore on the show, and he drops a bomb on us next week. So be sure to check that one out. And on that note, I'm gone. Peace. Peace.